Thank you, Joy. If you have uh, your Bibles, please uh, keep them open to that passage. We're going to be getting to it um, towards the end of our time. Um, we are in a series that we started back in June, and we uh, continued uh, what we actually are continuing today. We started it back in June, and then we had all these uh, different things going on in the church's life that we were participating in. And so now we're finally getting back to the series. And uh, if you weren't here for the first part of it, basically what we're taking a look at is the fact that the Bible, this book that we hold so dear, is filled up with, it's 66 books. It's one book, but it's, it's 66 individual books divided into two testaments, the Old and the New, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, and there's 40, 40 writers 40 authors, 40 human beings that God used to bring this inspired word to us, which is huge. Now, again, as we, we looked the first week, if you think about 40 different authors, it's not a shocker that you're going to find individual, unique dynamics through the whole book. That there's going to be a books of the Bible that don't sound anything like other books of the Bible because they were written through the personality and the pen of this individual, this particular guy, as opposed to this person over here who, was written, who wrote a book at a completely different time. So that's not a shocker. And that's one of the, the neat things about reading through Scripture is finding those personalities surface. The thing that is a shocker, at least to people who have a hard time believing the Bible is God's Word, is the fact that in addition to having a bunch of unique qualities throughout the whole thing, there are common threads throughout the entire book that unite the entire book. That is a po- that Contrary to popular belief that would say this culture over here should not write something similar to this culture or that this writer right here shouldn't sound similar to this writer, that there are things that are actually that transcend time and culture that are going through scripture that are uniting the entire book. These uh, intercanonical themes are really, really fascinating, at least to me, because when I, when I look at that, I recognize that if we look at each one of these things, if we look at each of these themes, these words, we can actually approach Scripture with a little bit more of an understanding of what the whole of it is saying. If we understand some of the macro themes that are starting in Genesis and go all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, then we have a chance to understand individually what this book is saying and communicating. So if we're in Leviticus or Exodus or 1 Thessalonians and we're like totally lost, we can come back to one of those words as a starting point. What does this book say about that theme that is throughout the entire book? How, if we start with that theme that's throughout the entire book of the Bible, how does that, that one filter help us understand what God is doing? But in addition to that, that each one of these one words help us have a starting point when we're having a conversation with someone who isn't a believer, isn't a follower of Jesus, who might be going through things and totally sketchy or ignorant to what scripture has to say, but this one word might be a starting point for them to help them understand on a deeper level what it is that God is saying. This week, this week we are focusing in on the word peace. And this word peace is something that we do in fact see from the beginning of the Bible to the end, but not in the same type of brand of peace that we oftentimes uh, define peace as, or that we impose upon peace in Western culture. When we think of peace, we think of an absence of war, we don't have any type of conflict overseas, we don't have a massive threat uh, nationally. Peace for us might mean like, okay, there's peace in the house, okay, there's not, you know, people aren't yelling, throwing things, things are not flying, cats, whatever, through the air, that's not happening. 
peace is in the home, or peace at work might mean that, you know, like the boss isn't freaking out nonstop, or, or, or that your job is secure, there's peace there. These things is, are, are the things that we kind of mean when we think of peace, but that's not what Scripture is talking about when it says peace. What, what Scripture is talking about when it says peace is far deeper, uh, more, more, has a lot more quality to it. It's talking about shalom. Shalom is this, this Hebrew word that, that you see that concept even eke itself into the New Testament where it's written in, when, when we see Greek words that are in, um, influenced by that Greek word or that Hebrew word, shalom. Shalom, it, it doesn't just mean an absence of war. It means completion. It means wholeness. It means protection. It, it's the making whole. Something was disjointed, but now it is, it's complete. It's whole. It's completely secure. So yeah, there, is there an absence of war? Sure, but, there, but more than that, in the midst of everything, there's this perfection. And we see throughout the entire Bible this concept of shalom speaking itself into the entire book. And so what we're going to do this morning in the time we have left is just simply to go through the entire Bible. Let's start with Genesis. We got in Genesis, uh, God's original design was one of peace. Back in Genesis 1, we have that concept of completion, protection, and wholeness. Why? Because we have peace, but we have completion from God the Father. We're protected by him in the garden. Things are are complete between us and God, between us and each other. Adam and Eve, there there was no issues there. Between us and nature, the the environment that, that was around us, there was perfect peace. This was God's original design, and he was with us perfection. But we realize in Genesis 3 that that peace did not last long. All of a sudden, it was broken, and it was broken by us. We have this holy God who is completely perfect, who created us, designed us to have a relationship with him, and to serve him, and to submit to him. And so when we made, when we diverged off that road and said, you know what? I hear what you're saying, but I want to be my own God. All of a sudden, our bodies were influenced, and nature itself was influenced by something it was absolutely not designed for. It's like taking your new car that you just take off the lot, and instead of filling it with gasoline, filling it with Gatorade, or worse, sand. That's what happens to the creation all of a sudden when it decides to go off the grid of what we were created for, this relationship of submitting and trusting and being faithful to God and saying, no, actually, I want to be my own deity. Peace was broken because everything we were created for was derailed at that point. And that, all of a sudden, opens up to the rest of the Old Testament. The rest of the Old Testament, we see this very unflinching, uncensored approach to help us understand humanity's pursuit of seeking peace but not finding it. And this is the thing. The thing I love that we see in Scripture over and over and over again is not this, you know who are the bad guys? Those pagans over there. You want to know who the really messed up, sinful, awful people? Those guys over there. Scripture talks about, honestly, about the reality that anyone who's away from God ha- has all these issues, that evil exists. But it points the finger at ourselves time and time again. The most flagrant offenders are often God's people themselves. This book does not paint an airbrushed picture of God's people or us. It simply honestly looks and says, this is how the peace was broken. And this is what we tried to do to fix it on our own. And over and over again throughout the Old Testament, you see people seeking this completion that only God could afford them. And we see this all throughout. We see it um, starting off with materialistic, uh, materialistic peace. And we see that happening whenever we see Scripture talking about idolatry. 
See, because idolatry isn't uh, God's people saying, I don't believe in God. I believe in this um, false God that, is, that I could carve out and put in my kitchen. What we see instead is we see the fact that God's people are saying, no, no, I totally believe in Yahweh. I believe that there's one true God, that he exists. But my crops, like I've been talking to God. I've been asking him to help out and like nothing is happening over here. We're kind of hungry. And, 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 and I'm looking over at my next door neighbors, you know, the pagans. And those guys, they've got stuff. And, and, and their crops are doing just great. So it's not that I don't believe in God. I just want to see what's working for those guys and implement it. I mean, it, it's pragmatic. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to worship God in my heart. I'm going to hold him dear for sure, but I got to do what I got to do. And if that means that I'm carving this little image and I put it in my kitchen like a good luck charm, who, who gets hurt by that? What it is is it's saying, God, I know that you are my protector. You are my completer. You're the one that makes me whole, but I don't, I don't trust you. I need this to get me by. To supply for me materially, to supply for me physically. And so, turning to God, to idols, to establish material security rather than trusting God, and we see this 310 times in the Bible total. 277 times in the Old Testament, and 33 times specifically in the New Testament, where you see people turning to idolatry to answer life's deepest materialistic questions. And this is the thing that gets Israel in trouble time and time and time again. Throughout the whole Old Testament, you see them reoccurring, coming right back to that issue over and over again. I believe in you, God. I just don't trust you. I need something else that I can put my trust in. They continue on with political peace, trying to aim to get their completion from uh, politics, placing their hope in their government to provide the ultimate leadership in their lives. See, again, they're the people that says, listen, no, God, I believe in you, but there's a problem with you. You're invisible. Like, I can't, I can't look to you. And, and that would be one thing if it wasn't for the fact that all of our neighbors, all the countries around us, these people who are intimidating people, they've got a dude. And usually the dude's pretty attractive and tall. We got nothing. We got, we're talking about, like, oh yeah, no, he's there. Really, he's there. And they just look at us like we're idiots. We need somebody. We need a person that we can, we can look to, that we can have our hope in, that when things go wrong, we can complain to his face about. We want somebody. We want a king. And in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8, God through Samuel tells him, do you understand what's going to happen as soon as you get a king? He's going to send your kids off to war. Your boys are going to go off to war, and they're going to die on the battlefields for his wars, not mine. He's going to tax you. And in addition to taxing you, he's going to take liberties with your property and infringe upon your rights, and he's going to have every right to do so. You know why? Because you've made him your king. And in that day, you're going to come back to me and say, God, why do we have a king? And you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to listen to you on that day. That's what 1 Samuel says. They were putting their hope in political peace. If we have somebody we can look to, that's going to give us completion. We're going to feel complete like everybody else if we have him. Not only that, nationalistic peace, putting their faith in their country's identity and military might over God's protection. Really quick, before we get to that, on the political peace, isn't it great that we don't do that anymore? We don't like put our faith, you know, in, um, and our hopes and our dreams and our, our, our emotions into politics. I mean, we can pretty much handle things pretty open-ended, right? No, we're just as messed up. And this is what we need to do. Every four years or eight years, when it comes around to this time when families get psychotic 
and people start getting all unhinged about stuff, what we need to recognize is that the very same thing that, that well, actually, we'll get to this later, but just don't do that. Nationalistic peace. Putting their faith in their country's identity and military might over God's protection. What this is saying is, listen, we do live in dangerous times, so we need bigger guns. If we've got bigger guns, then we get, we got something that we can say, okay, good, we've got some protection going on here. We've got some, some defense going on here. We don't have to live in fear. And God's like, yeah, but I am your protector. No, I, I, God, I believe that. But we just need to continue to ante up things so that we're able to be in a place where we have the security that we want and we need. And David is the guy that pushes back against that. David the king, in Psalm 20, verse 7, he pens this. Some put their hope and their faith in chariots and horses, which is their equivalent of missiles, defense system, and tanks. Some put their hope in, what, in, in the arms that they have and their military. But we, we hope in the Lord. We depend upon him. The actual verse says, some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we depend upon the Lord our God. They will fall down, but we we will stand firm. God's people consistently sought their completion, protection, and wholeness in materialistic peace through idolatry, political peace through their king, nationalistic peace through the amount of, of military might they have, and then passion-based peace, uh, following their heart's desire to establish the satisfaction only found in God. And, and Solomon, David's son, as we get through the Old Testament, starts to speak to this in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is the most depressing book of the Bible. If you're having just an overwhelmingly good weekend, like right now, you're like super stoked because it's 4th of July, you've got, you went to Walmart, you bought a ton of patriotic gear, you went over to Indiana and you bought a bunch of illegal fireworks, you're stoked, you're ready to go, you're all so excited about what's going to take place this weekend, you're like, I'm just, I'm almost too happy. If that's you, read Ecclesiastes, it'll take you right down. That is the most emo, postmodern, depressing book you're going to find because it starts out with the introduction of Solomon at the end of his life having experienced everything that we could possibly hope to experience saying, you know what? It's a joke. This whole life is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do you like? Oh, you like that? It's meaningless. And he goes through the book and systematically in this poem continue to just derail everything that we aim to make our life's ambition. Every American dream we could possibly wrap our hearts around, he says, yep, that's meaningless too. He does this over and over again all throughout it. He, uh, he, go, he talks about academic insight. Oh, you think that it's great to be intelligent, smart, awesome. Go for it. Give your whole life to that. Guess what? You're going to get to your end of your life just like me and realize it's a letdown. You, you want to pour your life into overworking yourself, becoming a workaholic. Great. That's fantastic. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to get to the end of your life full of regret, a letdown. You want to invest your whole life into retirement, building everything up for retirement. Great. That's so wise. Letdown. You're going to get to the end of your life, and Sol- in Solomon's words, you're going to realize that the cash that you're going to pass on as an inheritance to the next generation will be squandered. What a waste. I mean, again, he just, everything that we can think of, buying stuff on Amazon.com. Wait. Yeah, it's in there. It, the, the idea of accumulating things and just like, if I just, if I just buy it and I click and in two days, the box shows up with a smile on it and I open it up and it feels good and it feels like something is, Christmas has dropped into July right here on my doorstep and it feels that way for moments until I click again for the next thing I'm buying. 
And, 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 and Solomon talks about how we, we can let our passions of, of like the things that we can accumulate. You think that you got all the stuff you've collected that's in your garage, that's in the store places of your house, as your house continues to accumulate more and more stuff, that that's going to bring you satisfaction, completion, wholeness. It's going to protect you. It will. It's going to be good for a couple moments. And then it's going to be a letdown. Having people tell you how awesome you are, Solomon says, is a letdown. Because you can constantly be aiming to have people just tell you how great you are. And it's going to work. It's going to make you feel good until they walk out of the room and you're going to be hungry for more and emptier because of it. Uh, Climbing the vocational ladder, having more power, becoming wealthy, let down, let down, let down. Uh, He doesn't speak specifically to romantic relationships, but we know Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And in this book, he says everything, everything under the sun, it's meaningless. So he's basically saying, all of, the, all of the sexual pursuits you could possibly have, I've had them. And I get to the and you, you think that this is going to bring me fulfillment. It's going to make me satisfied. And guess what? It doesn't. I feel more empty because of it. Because I put my hope in it. Because I thought that it was going to make me feel complete. And it didn't. So I had to move on to the number 452. He talks about that. And he even gets down to dead religion. Even takes aim at religion. He says, you want, you want to know what religion is? It's meaningless. It's a dead end. If you're putting your hope in ritual to fulfill you, to bring you completion and wholeness and protection, you are barking up the wrong tree. This is a dead end. Absent from this complete submission to God, your religion is just going to be a vehicle of your depression. It's going to be a vehicle of your disappointment. Materialistic peace, political peace, nationalistic peace, passion-based peace. Dead ends. Ways that we seek completion, but we don't find it. And you see this over and over and over. God's people learn their lesson, and then they walk right out of it. And you think, this is the darkest, gloomiest thing in the world. Until you realize that that's not the end of the story. Because throughout the Old Testament, you see peace predicted, like in Isaiah 9. In Isaiah 9... Isaiah says this, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are, were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Now, us who have read the New Testament, we realize, oh my gosh, it's right there. He's talking about Jesus. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, just kind of earmark that, because it's important. As for in, this, in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be de- destined for burning. It will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. For to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of what? Peace. Of the greatness of his government and what? Peace. There will be no end. Amen? Now here, the thing with Midian... Midian, that, that's, that's like an illusion, flashback to Judges 6 and 7 with, with, with Gideon. And he's up against this amazingly sophisticated army of the Midianites. He's t- 
toast. He knows he's toast. He's understaffed. He's underarmied. He's undergunned. They got bigger guns, bigger army. And God says, okay, so here's how we're going to win. Reduce your army tons. Just get rid of all your good guys. Get, get, rid of, get rid of the masses that you have. And you're going to go into the battle outnumbered. We're going to die. No, you're, I'm going to protect you. And what we see in, with Gideon and the Midianites is God stepping in. It wasn't Gideon and his strategy or his military might that won the day. It was God supernaturally intervening. And what Isaiah is saying is, just like it wasn't Gideon, but God who stepped in and intervened, intervened supernaturally to bring peace in that situation. So in the future, it's not going to be mankind. It's going to be God who's going to intersect humanity's timeline through Jesus. The Messiah is going to come. And he will be the Prince of Peace. And he did come. And we see that he came when he came to Bethlehem. Again, prophesied that the peace would come and it was going to come to this little town. Peace arrived, but it did not merely arrive. Jesus didn't just simply get born and go to the cross. He actually starts to teach when he begins his ministry. And faux peace is derailed. Jesus goes through and helps them understand everything that took place in the Old Testament. He helps them understand God's peace is different than their brand of peace. That even in their dead religion that there's no peace. He starts to speak to, to things that they're dealing with like worrying about finances. And he communicates, why are you worrying? My, my heavenly father takes care of the animals and the plants. He's going to take care of you. Possessions do not have to possess you. You can have peace. Do finances stink right now? Are you, make, are you paycheck to paycheck and right now things are really, really strapped? Yes, but you can have peace that transcends that because possessions don't possess you. You can understand that even in this moment, God's taking care of you. But not only that, politics don't have to pollute you. See, Jesus is then in a time where, again, the people are under the, they didn't vote the Roman Empire in. The Roman Empire stepped in. The Israelis people, the people of Jerusalem and Israel are under the oppressive boot of Rome. And so the religious leaders want to trap Jesus. Nobody likes the Romans. They hate them. They hate the fact they have to pay taxes to them. They hate the whole thing. And so they want to trap Jesus and say, so, you know, basically getting them into a situation of answering a tax question to the Roman Empire. Should we do this or not? I mean, these guys are the bad guys. Clearly, one day the Messiah is going to rid us of these terrible people. So what do you think? Should we, should we rid ourselves of paying taxes to these people? And Jesus is like, what are you talking about? Who's on your money? Pay taxes to them. Be a good citizen. You're part of this. I mean, you're, you don't have to like it, but you're part of this empire. So pay taxes. But you don't pay taxes thinking that this person is your king, your God. The one who dictates your, your humanity. The one who dictates your joy or your emotional well-being. This person is a person. And later on in Scripture, we realize that this person is someone who, even though Caesar was a bad guy, God put him in charge to accomplish his goals. And so Jesus is saying, so, be a good citizen. Yeah, vote. Be, be involved with stuff. Pay your taxes. But never under the assumption that that is going to be something that, that all of your heart is wrapped into in a, in a way of thinking that this is going to bring ultimate peace. It won't. It never can. It could. And so every four to eight years, as Christians, what we should do is simply say, okay, we're, we're approaching whoever we're voting in under the guise of this person isn't God. No matter how amazing or awful they are, they, they, cannot, they cannot destroy God's plan. They can't. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. Do you believe that? Now, here's, here's the other weird thing about that is because I, I, am, I am a recovering political junkie 
who every four years would just like watch, you know, the news and every moment of that, what was going on, because I was like, it, it was an addiction every four to eight years. It was unhealthy. I, and and it, it made me so stressed out. And when the person I wanted to win did, I was jubilant. I, I, jubilant? Jubilee? That. I was that. I was all that and more. Until you realize this. If the person that you want to get voted in wins, all of a sudden you're absolutely ecstatic until you realize that they are never stepping up to the plate the way you thought they would. They never accomplish everything they say they would. Or you're the person that hopes to get this person in and your person fails. They, never, they don't get voted in. And you feel like apps, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Everything's rotten. This country is down the toilet now because my guy didn't get voted in. This is not the way Christians respond to politics. Instead, we recognize that we are going to do the best job we can to prayerfully, assertively be a part, a part of this community. To be citizens who vote people in and vote people out the best we can, understanding that we, we don't have the full picture. And when our guy or girl gets in, booyah, great. But you know what? This person's a human. They're going to disappoint me. They're going to let me down. So I'm going to prayerfully support them the best I can. And when the person we don't want to get in gets in, booyah. We're going to prayerfully support this person because they're a human being. But God is the one who orchestrates the leaders and rulers of time. And so we prayerfully support this person. And do everything we can to try to usher in God's kingdom even under, under that person's influence. Politics do not pollute us. We have peace in the midst where everyone else doesn't. But not only that, instead of revenge, we respond to persecution with prayer and love. See, again, peace is something where, where we feel protected. When we don't feel protected, we do goofy things like seek revenge. Like, you hurt me, I'm going to take you down ten times harder so you never do it again. That's that's human nature. That's common sense even. Jesus comes in and says, you know what? If somebody comes in and tries to, 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 to like harm you, if, 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 if someone is your enemy, especially if they're your enemy because of faith, pray for this person. Love this person. Well, that just doesn't make any sense. I don't feel very protected if I'm just praying for this person. And he says, yeah, but you know what? You need to recognize that it's God who brings vengeance, not you. Someone's wronged you. You don't go back and get them back ten times harder because when you do that, you're saying, God, I believe you, but I, I got the wheel on this one. Let me take this. Instead of revenge, we respond to persecution with prayer and love. The peace that we think we can acquire in our own hands, Jesus derails time and time again. And then ultimately, true peace is paid for when Jesus goes to the cross. Because that was what it was all leading to. That was what everything from the garden's broken peace was leading to. The point of one person being able to actually restore peace between us and God. The thing that everyone is seeking out after. The thing that everyone is looking into their stuff or their relationships or their possessions or whatever. Or their power or or how they're doing at work. The thing that they're looking at all that was actually what Jesus was affording us on the cross. And true peace was paid for. And Isaiah says it. Isaiah, back in the Old Testament, he prophesied about it. He said, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, was upon Jesus. And by his wounds, we are healed. This is his work. He's the one who makes peace. Not us. Not our conditions. Not our circumstances. Him. And the, and the reason this is so amazing is because, and this is, I wrote this when I was Look at it, something. Like, this is huge. This is huge because peace, the most valuable and sought after thing in history, was bought for me with a price I couldn't afford and sealed by a promise I cannot break. 
I, I could not make peace between me and God by being good enough. I could, and, and the scriptures communicate that. I have lack of peace because of my actions. But even my best actions can't make things right again. Even if I go to church and I, I'm, I, and I tithe and I read the Bible, and I, can't make, I can't bridge that gap. The peace is still broken because I am still running on the fumes of the sand I put in the gas tank. The only one who can make peace is someone from the outside who's perfect, and that was Jesus. He did something I could not possibly afford on my own. And the best thing is because he's making this promise, and it's a covenant of peace with us, because of that, it's something I can't undo. I, 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 it, it's his promise to me that he's going to forever save me, forever seal me through the Holy Spirit. Which means that there's never going to come a point where God's going to say, man, you know, Errol, I, I saved you. I mean, everything, I restored you. I redeemed you because of what I did on the cross. And you, you received that. But man, that thing you just did, that was messed up. It's over, man. I got, I got to kick you out of the club now. That doesn't happen. It's sealed with a promise I cannot break because it's built and based on him. Amen? That, that's awesome. When we realize that, all of a sudden we realize that's amazing. And the cool thing is, is that it's not just for forgiveness that we get, get to catch up for one day in heaven. It's something that we can actually start living out the reality of now because we have peace lived out now by the lead, leadership of the Holy Spirit. When you become a Christian, God gives you himself to walk with you and guide you and lead you to not only enjoy the, the, the legal reality of your peace between God, you're no longer an enemy, but the everyday practical reality of peace. That I don't have to make choices that, that are in rebellion to God. I don't have to live like I'm someone who's against God in my everyday choices. Romans 8, 6 says, letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and what? Peace. Peace. When you think of your life right now, you, you may be saved, but when you think of your life right now, are you experiencing the benefits of shalom? Are you experiencing the benefits of completion at work? Completion in the home. Wholeness in your relationship. Protection. And that doesn't mean that things are great. I'm talking about, are you experiencing the fruit of the fact that you're walking in that? Because one of the things that we realize is that when we start following Jesus, we're enabled to live out something that's not crazy town. And some of our lives, honestly, are crazy town. We, we have a ton of cray-cray all over our house because of our own decisions. We make decisions that, that if we were completely honest, we would look and say, that decision of how I respond to that, to that situation is not congruent with this. That decision of how I respond to that person when I was just completely, I felt so humiliated by them, and so I was not in step with him. That attitude that I've been developing since I was eight, that I've been totally justified, isn't justified by this. My life is messed up and it's chaotic and I, I'm a Christian and I know where I'm going when I die, but, but everything, there, peace is not in my life. Could it be that even though you are legally at peace with you and God, your decisions are taking you off the grid of experiencing the fruit of that? You're choosing anti-peace decisions that are making life more and more of a drama than of the story that God wants it to be in your life making it more and more difficult for you to experience everything that he wanted you to experience. 
If that's you, the good news is that he has equipped you and enabled you through the Holy Spirit to follow his lead and make decisions that are actually going to add to your peace and not take away. Now, you can't control the people around you. You can't control your spouse. You can't control your kids. You can't control your boss. You can't control conditions or circumstances. But you can control the decisions you make and recognize whether or not those are congruent with this book. And those that are led by the Holy Spirit lead to life and completion, wholeness, protection, that reality of God walking in step with you. And that's a battle. And we're going to have that battle until the end. But the cool thing is that at the end, we have this. Final peace is established. Final peace is established. And this is the cool thing, because when you look at the whole of the book of the Bible, you see, back in the beginning, peace created. This, this amazing relationship between us and God established. And after everything that has happened throughout human history, the trajectory where that lands, the plane lands on final peace being established. That, that, in, that in the end of the uh, book of Revelation, in Revelation 21, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and earth had ceased to exist, and the sea existed no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the residence of God is among human beings. He will live among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will not exist anymore or mourning or crying or pain for the former things have ceased to exist. And then he finishes it off with one final line in that passage that says, and the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. Then he said to me, write it down because these words are reliable and true. The end of the book of the Bible, the, the end of the Bible itself is proclaiming that the thing that Jesus is leading us towards is peace, a forever peace. For those who have received his salvation, who've received his forgiveness, all of a sudden, that is what they're experiencing. The new heavens and the new earth, where the dream that God had initially planted in the Garden of Eden is re-realized, and you are there if you're in him. So what? That's great. The whole Bible's about peace. So what? What difference does that make? It makes a couple of significant differences. The first is that we understand that true peace, not just absence of conflict that's momentary, or, or absence of, of desperation that I can kind of feed by, by drowning myself with alcohol, or drowning myself with stuff I buy, or drowning my stuff with accolades. True peace that's, that doesn't have an expiration date like that is within reach now because of Jesus. Right now. Okay, you, you may be a Christian right now, or you may have been a Christian for years, but the peace that comes from the reality that you experience legally between you and God can be experienced now because of Jesus. Take a look again at Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. This verse that, again, is, is oftentimes used in athletics, for, I mean, it makes sense why it would be, is really talking about this concept that in the brokenness of my world, I can experience peace now. He says, I can do all of this. I can go through all of this life, the ups and downs of life. I can go through all this through him who gives me strength. I could do this through Jesus. This peace is accessible now. So right now, if you're in here right now and you're thinking about your finances and it's given you an ulcer, you're thinking about your marriage or your, or your ex-marriage and it's just got you all turned up. You've been up all night. You're thinking about your kids and the disappointments of your own decisions or work, all the craziness with work, 
or the mistake that you made last week or the week before. All of that has got you tossed up. There is peace accessible to you right now in Jesus because Jesus broke in and gracefully gave you peace. And you can experience that reality right now. Not only can you realize that reality right now, but true peace transcends condition and circumstance if you have Jesus. Again, if you look at what Paul's saying in the verses leading up to 13, he's not saying, you want to know why I can do all things through Jesus? Because Jesus has given me a great life. Things are good. I mean, like, finances are good. Relationships are good. You know what? Because, because of the good, I can do all things through Jesus. No. He says, it's been all over the map. Verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. And get this, I've learned the secret. There's a secret. And and he's talking to Christians. And so he's sharing a secret that maybe you, as a Christian, don't know. He says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And the secret is that I can do everything through Jesus. The secret is, is that this, is, this transcends my circumstances. So, if things in your marriage are epic, I mean, you're like ready to write a book, it's so good. We need to hear from you how amazing life is. Please, comment. You're, that, that, you're on that level? Praise God. Jesus is with you. If you've just been served the papers, and this is going to be the ugliest divorce in the world, praise God, Jesus is with you. If things right now, health-wise, you are at the top of your game, you're thinking, man, I've never felt this good, I've never felt this healthy, I, I feel like... I'm going to start making infomercials. They're going to call me, I know, because I'm feeling so awesome. Praise God. Jesus is with you. If they tell you it's stage four, and the best thing you could do is just spend time with your family and be as comfortable as possible, praise God, because Jesus is with you. This is peace that is not absence of conflict. It's completion in Jesus, wholeness because of Jesus, and protection. I know that no matter what happens in this category or that category, he is with me. I am not alone. That kind of peace transcends any circumstance or any condition this world can chuck at me. Period. Additionally, true peace transforms anxiety by resting in the person and presence of Jesus. Um, if you've struggled with panic attacks um, or anxiety, I, I've struggled with panic attacks before, a little bit of anxiety um, at different seasons in my life. And if you've ever struggled with anxiety or panic attacks, people give you tricks. Like if you do that, like if your brain just starts going into panic attack mode and you're spiraling and you can't control your brain, think about a happy thought or, or think about this, and this is going to be a cool trick to, to cheat yourself out of freaking out. Does, it, does anyone relate to what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, a lot of us freak out. So it, there's, there's psychological tricks that, that if you go to any bookstore, they can tell you what they are. They're, they're awesome cheats, and I, and I employ them. I do. But that's not true peace. It's tricking your brain. It's like lying to yourself just to try to get you through the, the crazy moment. True peace is what Jesus affords, and it's this. 
in this moment that I am terrified, in this moment where I am absolutely undone, where life is chaotic, where I can't fix this, I can't control my mind right now, I can't control everything, and I'm panicking in this crazy moment. I'm not doing something that's going to sweep that under the rug or eject myself out of it to try to think of Disney World. In this moment, I can realize that right here, Jesus is with me. That the very real person and the very real presence of Jesus is in the anxiety right now with me. And if you're in him, with you. Is that your story? Have you allowed Jesus to step into the anxiety, the panic, the depression, the ulcer of this moment? Have you let him, have you realized that he is willing to sit in this with you through this, knowing that ultimately the greater story for you is not this. This is not the loudest message in your mind, that his word is the louder word in your mind. It tells a better story. There's a story um, about a songwriter named Horatio uh, Spafford. And Horatio um, uh, was back in the 1800s. He was a Chicago lawyer and real estate owner. And um, this one year, 1871, was a terrible year. His, he has five kids, and his son, his only son, uh, died of pneumonia. So just, just put yourself there. Your, your, your little kid dies. You have to bury your son. In the same year... He loses almost all of his investments, his real estate investments and his, and his business because of the Chicago fire. He loses his son. He loses all of his income. And in the next year and a half, two years, he starts to build things back up, tries to reinstate his business. He gets invited to join D.L. Moody um, over in Europe um, on, a, on a, a campaign, to, evangelistic campaign, which he thinks is awesome. I'll be able to honor God and help, help out D.L. Moody. This is great. He thinks that this is going to be great for his wife and his four uh, daughters because they've gone through all of the heartache of, of losing their, their little brother, their son, and losing their business. And so with the funds that he had been building up, he sends his wife and his four daughters ahead of him to Europe. To, he's going to catch up with them later for the evangelistic campaign. He just had to get some business done in Chicago before leaving. And four days into the voyage, their ship collides with the Scottish ship. And his wife, Anna, grabs his, their four daughters and um, starts to pray, God, please save us, please save us, or give us the strength to go forward. And in the next minutes, it went fast, that ship sunk, and she lost her kids in the, in the, in the midst of all the chaos, and her four daughters drowned. They barely uh, found her. They, uh, of the 310 people on the ship, 226 died. She was one of the people who were saved. And she telegraphs uh, her husband, um, I'm the only one who was saved. What should I do? So she's mourning over in England at the point, and uh, Horatio decides to go over and bring her back. And as he's going across the ocean, uh, in, in the ocean liner that he was in, um, the captain brings him into his cabin and says, I just want to let you know that this is the spot. And um, he leaves the cabin and he starts to write a song that you sang today. 
The reason that he could write that on that ship was because of the next verse. The next verse says, though Satan should buffet, the trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. He gets into the next verse and says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Contemplating the death of his daughters, he finishes the song with, and Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trumpet shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. The thing I love about that song is the fact that this guy is not saying, God has blessed me so much, that's why it's well with my soul. God has given me so much, me and my family, so much, it is well with my soul. He said, in this darkest moment, because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, it is well with my soul. This is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story for you either. If you are not Jesus, if you do not have a relationship with him, please talk with me. I would love to pray with you. I would love to share with you that that hope and that peace. If you are in Christ, let this be the defining word over your life. What I'd like to do is just finish this service um, with us all standing and reading one of Paul's other recollections and realizations that we have in Jesus and the peace we have in him. Let's read this together. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let everyone see your gentleness. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Instead, in every situation, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, tell your requests to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go live it out.